everybody, welcome back to another Bald Movie. I'm your host, Dayron. And I'm Jim. And we are here to talk about the 2005 biopic, uh, Capote, uh, which got nominated for Best Picture. Just a slew of uh, uh, picture, director, actor nominations. It was directed by Bennett Miller, who's also the director of Moneyball from 2011 and Foxcatcher from 2014, uh, and written by Dan Futterman who is the, uh, a writer who also collaborated with Bennett Miller on the movie Foxcatcher. Both were childhood friends of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays the titular Capote and took home Oscar gold for this just amazing and precise uh, portrayal of this very, very interesting, complicated man uh, and during, during a defining period of his, time, uh, his life. Um, it stars, as I said, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote, uh, Catherine Keener, who does an amazing job at playing Harper Lee. Yes, that Harper Lee, the killer mockingbird Harper Lee, uh, Clifton Collins Jr., who you might remember as Lawrence from Westworld, uh, plays a drifter, uh, that, uh, uh Capote gets, uh, involved in, um, in this murder investigation. Bruce Greenwood plays, uh, Philip, or not Philip Seymour, Capote's long-term, uh, romantic interest and partner. Uh, Amy Ryan, uh, you might recognize from The Office, um, is also in this movie playing the wife of an investigator from Kansas, and then Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper uh, is that uh, investigator, and he's he's playing the gruff paternal figure that you always see him in movies. Sometimes he's a good guy, sometimes he's a bad guy, but he's always gruff and, and very fatherly. Um, man, I really love this movie. I, this is I, it's the first time I've ever seen it um i have wanted to see it for some time and i was blown away jim uh what, what what's your experience with this film and what do you think i was also blown away um i didn't know anything about truman capote like almost literally nothing i knew he was an author uh i didn't know that he wrote screenplays i certainly didn't know that he wrote breakfast at tiffany's i didn't know uh anything about the man other than he had written some pretty famous stuff uh, but I didn't know what those things were. And so mm-hmm. I, I go into this movie thinking the, the reason I wanted to watch this is because I heard how good Philip Seymour Hoffman was in it. Uh, and, you know, we've just come off of one of his other performances uh, in Talented Mr. Ripley. And that was like, yeah, not, not to my taste, but this movie absolutely was. Um, and I was surprised by what a deep look at a complicated character this was it's it's much better than a run-of-the-mill biopic i i kind of expected to just get in here and be totally nonplussed by all of the capote stuff in the movie called capote uh mm-hmm. and be looking sort of for hoffman to redeem this film in my eyes but i found that the the film itself was up to the challenge uh yeah i, I really liked it because I, I didn't know him. I knew this about Capote. I knew he's a public figure, um, kind of like an Oscar Wilde type, who's just renowned for being endlessly quotable and very quick-witted and yeah. uh, probably flexible in his sort of sexual orientation. Uh, but I, I found that, you know, I've done a lot of research since. And actually, I thought this movie did a great job of just spoon-feeding all these details. And, like, you, you really get a feel, like, and just watching... Um, this is a fantastic introduction of a character where he's just holding court at a party, mm-hmm. talking, about, you know, name dropping left and right and like walking that fine line between someone saying you're full of shit and also just being too kind of fascinated, fascinating and quick to like shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And they just do like just keep on building. Like uh, I remember, like when Harper Lee steps on, I'm like, well, surely it's not that Harper Lee. Is that Harper Lee? And they just keep on. And also, they use that as kind of like a, a way to tell the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, she's shopping to kill a mockingbird. Oh, it's sold, and she's oh, it's actually doing well. Oh, it's actually being uh, you know Henry Fonda's playing her her father Atticus Finch, and and the movie's premiering, and they're at the movie. It uses that to kind of like tell the passage of time, which I thought was really fascinating. Man, I just ah, I I, I can't put my finger on anything other than as you said, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just super watchable as this character, and yeah, um. God, I love, we, we need to get into. Uh, I don't want to get into too many spoilers thus far, um, any more than we already have. Uh, but the synopsis, in, in case you don't know, like us, like what the hell Capote is about. Um, so you have acclaimed author, playwright, and public personality Truman Capote, as we've talked about, hot off his success with Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, looking for his next project. And he sets his eyes on this murder case in Kansas, and he's enthralled by a shocking Midwestern affair. And he wants to go out and capture, like, uh, from a ground-eye view, the the community's mood dealing with something like this. It doesn't happen in everyday uh, small-town life. And in his research, he ends up uh, getting a very strong identification with and even an attraction to one of the suspected murders. Truman is going to go on to write a groundbreaking book called In Cold Blood that will be widely credited with being the first nonfiction novel ever written, as well as inventing an entirely new genre of literature, that of the true crime novel, but at what personal and moral cost to himself? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, boy, howdy, he does (laughs) does some questionable things in the route of, uh, along the way of writing that book, and... I, the film explores all these themes in ways that I found really interesting, enlightening, and and satisfying. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely things that I I had not really considered too much. It's like how does an author's work affect the author themselves? Um, yeah. Where where are the lines? Uh, where are the ethical lines between telling a story uh, as effectively as you can and telling a story that's true? Um, where are the lines between author and subject? I mean, there's there's just any number of questions about being an author trying to write about real people in interesting ways that I, you know, I'm not an author, so I don't think about these things. I'm sure they've been thought about to death since then, but like it, it just, it has this way of, of getting into these really complex, both emotional and intellectual topics uh, in ways that, you know, as someone who's new to the concepts, uh, didn't feel was over my head, but also felt were extremely explored extremely deeply too. Yeah, like just as a work of journalism, he violates several, <laughs> so many journalistic oh, standards. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, and he would probably like you say, like, I, well, I'm not a journalist. Um, but the other hand, he's writing a novel, but these are also real people. These aren't just some characters that he's invented, and. You know, the, I, I thought it was interesting because as soon as I got done read, watching, I started reading about uh, Capote. And, like, I didn't realize that In Cold Blood was, like, literally the first true crime novel that was ever written. And, like, he's kind of blazing this trail. Like, nobody's ever done something like this, try to sensationalize and capitalize and humanize. And, and uh, I, I want to excuse some of this behavior just because, well, no one's ever tried to do something like this and connect with something like this mm-hmm. in, in such a way. But also, like, I don't think the film asks you to. The film just, like, presents information about this person and his background and kind of lets you make 
you know, like there's this really great line where Harper Lee is trying, you know, one of his friends. And I thought that was also very satisfying to find out that like, did you know, for example, that the Bennett Miller, the director of this film, Dan Futterman, the writer of this film and Philip Seymour Hoffman were all childhood friends. No. In exactly the same way that Harper Lee was childhood friends with Truman Capote. Truman Capote is in the kill and not mockingbird mm-hmm. just as with a fictionalized name. And like, I thought this like this fucking film is so goddamn meta about these people going, coming together years later to finance and produce this film in the same way that like Harper Lee and Capote are boosting each other and helping each other out and their writing careers. And at this moment where Harper Lee's starting to really question about, mm-hmm. you know, like his moral and ethical underpinnings and, she's asking him like you know what is your deal with this guy why are you doing this and he this is why it's so complicated right because he says i feel like me and pete grew up in the same house and then one day he walked out the back door and i walked out the front Hmm. and i thought that was such i don't know if that's a real line because that's other meta thing about the, the the movie that we need to talk about but like that's such a great way that like capote's kind of like a literary drifter gangster like he all right yeah you know like like the what what peter said like uh like like what peter said about killing that the family um that this like he was looking at this man this nice man and i was scaring him and i felt ashamed and i was crying and i felt that way right up to the moment i slit his throat i feel like that's what capote would say about his dealings with peter like this is a this man is like a brother to me he could have been a lover Uh, It was like I wanted to save him like I saved myself, and I felt that way right up until I left him at the hangman's gallow and then went on to try to live the rest of my life. And I think he was approximately successful living the rest of his life as Peter was swinging at the end of that rope because the fact of the matter is like – shit, it doesn't seem like uh, Capote ever recovered from this experience. This is the last novel he ever finished. Yep. And uh, he drank himself into an early grave at 59. Um, So, yeah. And 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 the movie does a great job depicting that, too. Along the line, you can sort of see him progressively drinking more as this this thing goes on. And he doesn't even enjoy it. Like, there's a specific shot. And this is why Philip Seymour Hoffman is so brilliant. There's a shot, a couple of shots, actually, um, but on an airplane where he's being served another drink. And he takes a drink. And you can see the feeling of disgust on his face. It's not like he's enjoying what he's doing here, but he's drinking to to you know mask all of these feelings he has and and these dilemmas that he's struggling with. Yeah, and it's just like man, he um, he just does so much violence to himself. Like uh, he puts himself in these predicaments where he lies to the person that he's trying to gain the confidence and trust of, and then when the person you know when reveals that like i knew you lied and i don't care i just would like you to be with me in this moment and you know truman can't say no so there's a ridiculous scene where he goes out and he flies to be at this execution and then he's just drank himself into a stupor in his hotel room not answering phone calls and you see like every single one of these decisions like he tries you know it's like uh when his boyfriend asks him like what are you doing to this stuff like oh this is just a book i'm writing it doesn't matter and then when peter asks him like you know what do i mean to you like what is my story mean to you what do i mean to you and he tries to tell him the truth from that like he's just torn in all these different positions and and i don't know because like he also talks like um i don't know a lot about in cold blood 
you know, I've only seen this movie once and I did, you know, I yeah. did my, my, my research just as an interested person into it. Um, but I get the idea that these drifters had a really rough childhood and that, mm. you know, they were kind of like, you know, passed around and used sexually and just really confused and torn up and weren't protected by society and uh, did a lot of desperate things as a result. And you want to excuse some of that with Capote, but like also, yeah, I looked into his background and it seems like that he really exaggerated some of the abuse he felt at his mother's like, I, I but about, I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And also he's not exactly a fabulous. He doesn't just make shit up, but I think it's widely uh, suspected that he put a lot of spin yeah. on his subjects. And I wonder, and I, and also conf- I read a lot of articles to suggest that this movie puts a lot of spin on the uh you know in cold blood writing process so it's like one of the things where did he like take kernels of truth and twist them around to get peter's trust and also like i and some of that confused me because like i wondered if peter did the same thing like some of the shit he's saying because he knows it'll play with capote and are they using each other and then you know but at the end end of the day one of them swings from the end of the gallows and one becomes rich and socially famous yeah and i think that's the the crux of it i uh, in my notes my my biggest question is who is truman capote and i don't mean that from like a historical context i mean who is the man um i actually wrote that 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 who is capote question mark right Uh, because the film depicts two very different uh certainly different motives but almost two different people within capote where You've got the guy who is an extremely empathetic man. Uh, he, he's deeply empathetic. He understands the the things that uh, Peter goes through in his childhood on a very personal level. He identifies that, and and he maybe even falls in love with the man. Then you've got this other character who is deeply manipulative and willing to do whatever it takes to further his own success, and that includes lying to his subjects. That includes lying to his friends. That includes making shit up constantly for his own profit and i think the real answer is to to who is truman capote he's both of those characters and that's what makes it such a fascinating uh depiction of this character or or this man you know he's a real it's real life person yeah it's wild like he's got this weird juggling act where he's like always self-enabling you know like there's this conversation where he calls his boyfriend and it's like getting around christmas and it's his first, you know, a couple months. He probably planned on being in Kansas for a week, and now it's been a couple months. It's it's Christmas time, and you know, he's like, "Are you even?" Co-? He his boyfriend realizes like, "Shit, you're not even coming home for Christmas, are you?" And Capote's like, "Oh, be patient with me. Be patient with me." And he's like, "Well, I've got, I've almost completely out of rope with my boyfriend, so now it's time to like fuck Peter over and be like, hey, you know, I gotta, I gotta take care of something. I'm gonna be right back." And then the title card says one year later. <laughs> right. And Capote is in Spain living this lavish lifestyle with his boyfriend and his friends. And Pete is just languishing in jail. He's never been back to see him. Mm-hmm. He defensively says, oh, I exchanged letters. But does he? Like, you know, like I, th- there's a lot of things that I, I, I thought were just amazing. Uh, of Like, you know, Truman just wants to do the things he wants to do. And he doesn't want to hurt anybody. Um, but the one, the first thing is what much more important than the latter thing. 
and yeah, but, uh, I think you're he's right. also he's also too much he's also too empathetic to mm-hmm. like like some people could do this and just sleep like a baby and be rich and famous and yeah. go on with their life and Capote is just too smart and too empathetic to let himself off the hook to go through the through the fucking mental gym- gymnastics to use and abuse a person like this for your own fortune and fame and then just get on with your life yeah and it seems uh, like he never did so no damn uh and that's the thing it's like you don't need to see the story of the last 15 years or so of his life or 20 or 15 years of his life because the end of this movie's trajectory is bleak and yeah. the title card i thought said it all where it's like a quote from capote it says you know uh there's there's more tears shed for answered prayers than ever there were for unanswered um because like what what did he actually want to happen uh because I, I almost thought I, I couldn't, you know, like you, you said, who is Capote? Some of this stuff in act, like when, you know, like, uh, oh, I'm, uh, he, he said, uh, like, there's this line, this like crazy line where he's talking about the stay of execution that these men are requesting. Mm-hmm. And he says something like, oh, my God, it's almost like they're torturing me. Yeah. Uh, if if they, uh, what is that like if if they if they get off i'll have a nervous breakdown it's like yeah th- there's this weird sort of uh self interested note to to everything he's doing here which you know taints what otherwise i think would be a pretty uh uh i don't know a character who i would sort of respect and understand is sort of tainted by that i I don't really know how to describe it. No, they, they do such a great job of juxtaposition. Because again, there's it's very hard to like point to a script and say, "Aha, this is the moment where Capote, like you know, knew he'd done wrong or whatever." But the movie just just does all these juxtapositions. Like there's this one really arresting sequence where Capote's just told Peter, like Peter's like, "Okay, well, what's the book? Can I read some of it? I want to know, like you know, uh, I just want you to make sure that people understand this, that." And he's like, "Ah, oh, you know, I haven't even written any. I haven't written anything." Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just I'm just doing my research. I know I don't have a book. I don't have a title. I don't have a title. Yeah. And then they cut to him at a book reading, mm-hmm. where he's reading big sections of his book in cold blood. Yeah, and uh, they make and it they, clear all he doesn't have is the ending. And they juxtapose it with this Peter guy on death row watching the the final prisoner that's like next in line to him and like uh like capote's moral dilemma of like oh god how am i going to finish this book and how am i going to promote it versus this guy's moral dilemma of like, oh my god my life is within the end of my life is within reach and mm-hmm. it's in the sight and I, I also thought a lot about like man how fucked it is to be on death row or to be led to your own death like you ever thought about like as a human like whenever i think of terms of dying yeah. it's always like an accident or i got sick and i can't be fixed but like, what is it like to be a perfectly healthy person in the prime of your life being led to your death? Yeah, sure. like these men are just going to kill you. You're going to be fine. You're not in any pain. You're just going to you're just going to you're just going to cease to exist. And it's happening tomorrow. It's happening in five minutes. It's happening right the fuck now. And holy shit, the execution scene. Yeah, uh, when they when they put the hood on you, you it all it all hits home, right? It's it's like it, he didn't realize that this was actually a thing that was going to happen until that moment. Yeah. It's uh, devastating. It's crazy. It is. I, I feel like execution watchers should not be in anybody's job description. <laughs> yeah. But there's this whole room of people, you know, who are there. It seems simply to just witness this. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the other thing is like, I feel 
I feel like the one of the thesis of the movies is like Capote just had one too many moral bones to pull this off. Because if he had ghosted Peter and just left and not actually been and watched the execution, I kind of think, I don't know, maybe not. But like, I think the movie wants you to think that like maybe he could have turned that and then gotten over it. Hmm. But him staying there and watching it and it all washing over him, like he says, I don't think I'll ever get over it. He never did. Yeah. He never did. So like, he had that courage and integrity that like I can't stiff this old man or this man on a death promise, you know, like I, I don't know why. I mean, why did he come back? Because I, I didn't know how this movie went. And I really yeah. thought that that's what was going to happen. He was going to like, you know, they're showing this tug and toll of his tug and toll on his soul and that, you know, he was going to make one last promise. And he's going to break it. And then he was kind of going to be fine. Because I didn't know how Capote turned out. I didn't know no, it was no. late in life and, and like how kind of like futile and sad it all ended up to be. It impacted his relationship with his friends. It essentially like the, the, his relationship with his boyfriend doesn't seem like it was ever the same. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like uh, always drifting distant, but never really broken up. Um, I really thought that that was going to be the end of the arc. And I was genuinely shocked that he that he kept his word. Um yeah, I mean, it just shows the complexity of the man. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of um, a lot of times characters or people are sort of pigeonholed into one thing. And and that's the interesting yeah. thing early on in this film. He, you know, th- there's a line about how everybody thinks they've got him pegged when they, they see him, they hear him. They think, oh, I know who this guy is. And nobody's ever gotten it right. Uh, and I think like that's one of the things that eats him up so much, I think, toward the end is that he never really revealed himself to to Peter, even though, mm. you know, you know, he may very well love the man. He didn't he was incapable of truly revealing himself to anyone because he's so complex. And it's only in a matter of like being around him uh, over time and seeing his actions. Can you really sort of get to an understanding, which I think Harper Lee did? Um, of who Truman Capote was because he's so complex. I mean, and and it's part intelligence, it's part empathy, it's part uh, self-interest. It's it's all those things mixed into the stew that make the man that also keep you from ever really knowing him. And, and, and man, they really bring that home where to show just how he doesn't get it because Harper Lee's working on him and you know she's trying to get to like what he what he feels about Peter and like he glibly said like uh, Capote glibly says like. <laughs> Well, how can I be using this man heartlessly to further my career and be in love with him at the same time, honestly? Right. Like, that's exactly what scares the shit out of your friends, Capote. Yeah. Like, it's that you're like, doing that. <laughs> yeah, that you're using them and, you know, using them for what you can get out of them don't really care either way. Yeah. And you're able to do it with apparently. And that's the thing is like, but he couldn't like he sold this like mm-hmm. very um, tough and a glib exterior that apparently didn't exist. Like it was something to protect this uh, thing that ended up destroying him. But it did exist, too. I mean, it's it's not like he wasn't that yeah. guy. He's just he's both of these guys. I, I think the answer, like who is Drew McCapote? He's both of those guys. And, and trying to understand, because you're right, he's like a Rubik's Cube and that he would assemble himself and present a face that would work. Like, there's yeah. a scene where he's trying to appeal to this young girl and get her to open up to him. And you can tell that, like, you know, she's picking up his misfit vibes and he says something like, you know, um, you know, people have always underestimated and, and thought they could read me based on how I look and how I sound. You're not okay, going to do the I'm voice? Like, nah, I, I thought about <laughs> it and I'm like, I like doing voices. And I'm just like, I don't, I can't do it. That's a tough one. I, I yeah. A little bit for a podcast. Uh, it's not because I think it'd be offensive, 
but uh, it's just that I just can't do it. So, but he says that he he, he says that you can see like it changed, and I feel like he did the same thing with uh, Peter when he kind of like you know he showed the, he reassembled into the green face that of Rubik's cube to show the girl. Now he's reassembling into yeah. the. Uh, the blue face to show Peter all parts of the cube, but just different sides. He's showing to different people. Yeah. And then, like, it's all just a, a rotating twisting thing that protects the interior. Yeah. That, uh, so then people get, you know, all they see is a Rubik's cube and think, Oh my God, how can I ever trust that I'm seeing the final finished configuration? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's, uh, the, the end of the movie and the, the end of his, uh, of Capote's life seems to imply that, uh, all that shifting and uh, fronting and posturing and be, you know, like small betrayals of himself and others just, just fractured him in a way that he, he couldn't put himself back together. Also another uh, underlying the coldness is just a way like he bopped up to an investigator and be like, you know, I don't care either way, whether these guys get, you know, caught or if the community heals or whatever, I'm just here to tell the story. And mm-hmm. the investigator looks at him like, well, I do. I do care. And I do want to see. And, and he's just such a weird, weird. Like he said that because I think that's what if Capote was in his position, that's what Capote would want to hear. Yeah. Like, oh, you're not, you know, you're just just passionate and you don't care either way. And you're not going to put uh, which is also a lie because Capote has a very vested interest in juicing it up and making it sexy and all that kind of stuff. And sure. There's something also really gross about how excited he is about how good this material is going to be for him. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, anyway, yeah, he well, talks about it as like the the best book he's ever written, you know. Um, yeah. And he's already written a, an excellent one. So like, yeah, no, it's a complicated character, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And and the direction of this movie, I wouldn't I wouldn't call this film flashy by any means. I mean, it's pretty just like almost utilitarian in the way it's telling uh, its story visually. But I think there are a couple of shots um where Philip Seymour Hoffman really just shows why he's such an amazing actor. Uh, one of those I was talking about in the airplane when he's drinking, but there's another one when he's at the premiere of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, and he's trying to walk up the red carpet and smile. Mm. And for the life of him, he can't put on a convincing smile. And I feel like that's super hard to do as an actor, uh, is to smile without meaning it, um, yeah. and, and to struggle to smile. And Philip Seymour Hoffman just fucking nails that scene and i I don't like i don't want to take anything away from the directing because they very specifically gave that shot a moment uh but you know it's really kind of on the back of hoffman here yeah and i think it's interesting that the minimalist direction what you're talking about is like i think it's a it's a choice because the spotlight is on what uh, philip seymour hoffman is doing as capote yeah um, and I compare it to like, so, so Kentucky's got like all kinds of caves and you've got, um, like all these privately owned caves and you can go tour them and all the formations are lit up in these like garish lights and like these pink and purple. And it's like all vivid and it's supposed to like really appear to appeal to tourists. And then you go and like see the mammoth cave, which man, which is actually managed by the national forests, uh, and the park rangers and everything. And everything's very minimal and understated in the lighting. Yeah. But it's also fucking amazing it, it, it's all because it doesn't need to be gussied up it's fucking the largest cave system there's like rooms in there as big as a stadium you don't need the fucking light show to make people go holy shit this is something amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah. And i feel like the direction like this is very mammoth cave direction it's not diamond caverns or you know anything uh-huh. like that it's like it's like you don't just look at this man do this thing he's completely in he completely disappears in the role 
Um, yeah, he does. And, and you know, that's why he's one of my favorite actors in the master. I mean, he's a completely different character, but just as convincing. Right. Uh, everything I've seen him in, he is completely convincing. And it's also just a, a, a precise performance because, you know, Philip Seymour is like, what do you think? A natural like baritone? He's got this, he's, he's all yeah. his voices, he's got this like deep, rich timber voice. And he's doing this very soft, sibilant uh, capote impersonation. And it never wavers. It never gets muddled. There's mm-hmm. never a little bit of like, you know, when he gets like uh, excited or angry or sad, you don't see it like, it, like he, he has that thing fucking dialed in. Yeah. Uh, and I just got to think it's got to be, I, I thought that's the, and then some of the stuff he does too, where like, I think of that final five minutes he gets with Peter. Uh, what Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing where he's pissed away all the time and then he finally is like finding the words of the things he's always wanted to say Peter and he and he opens up he gets like halfway through the first like capote sentence it's going to be like this work of art and the warden's like time's up you gotta go mm-hmm. and like everything that was on like Phillips, the, the Hoffman's face when that was happening like this frustration and this resignation and the realization of like oh my god this I've done this yeah. I'm not a I am no longer a bystander I became an active participant in what is happening right now it's not even unjust like mm-hmm. you know you can say what you want about the death penalty I'm not a fan uh, but for this time I mean these guys were guilty as fuck they did a heinous crime uh, and they're getting you know they they uh, they got fair trials and every appeal, and this is, uh, as far as we can say, a just verdict, but Capote's not liking it because he likes this person, and he thinks this person could be me if I'd walked out the back door the, or, or, or the front, the, or instead of the front. And I yeah. just, man, there's a couple moments like that. Like you said, the smile was was a standout moment, but this, these these small moments in the, his reaction to the execution itself, mm-hmm. like it felt like a physical fucking shock hitting him. And then, uh, and then those party scenes too, the the juxtaposition of of the deeply emotional scenes with those moments I'm talking about ripping his pants from his scrotum to his ass crack. Like he's I, I found myself like struggling with this movie, thinking, man, they are really wildly depicting this character. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, I wasn't sure if that's what they were intending or I wasn't understanding what had happened. And I went around and I, I looked at uh, a couple of reviews for this thing and, and read some Wikipedia stuff about Capote. And I realized, no, actually, this is exactly what I was supposed to be feeling the whole time. Yeah. Uh, so they, they really nailed it on that level. Yeah, I, I thought that that like the first because I think that's really hard to do. Just like we talked about, it's yeah. it's hard for a Hollywood writer to write a fictional song that's supposed to be a number one chart topper sure because that's that's a skill all into its own and the idea that you as a hollywood writer are going to have that skill necessary to pull that off i think it's also it's also very hard to portray a weirdly magnetic person who's able to hold court inside a room of not just a bunch of rubes but like you know wealthy social well maybe (laughs) uh of wealthy socialites intelligent people people have been like you know just hold court in the elite these elite liberal establishments it's really hard to do that if you're not the 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 genuine article the real mccoy right 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 but hoffman does that Mm -hmm. you know um and i thought that like that first the the first thing that they where he's holding court he's talking about he's doing all these names driving he's talking about james baldwin's famous uh black uh gay civil rights activist and and very accomplished author um 
And Philip just doesn't give a shit. He's using this man's like traumatic experience as a punchline, uh, as 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 a joke to ingratiate himself into this audience. Yeah, you know himself a gay man who's got to feel a certain amount of oppression. Um, you know, like uh, he was like James Baldwin going to him as an author. It's like you know I just don't want this to be dismissed as a problem novel. Well, Jimmy, you're a black man in love with a a gay Jew in the South. It's gonna be a problem. Ha. <laughs> Like uh, it's that's that same kind of thing where he's going to take a, a real genuine moment of like pain and uncertainty and a, someone coming to him in friendship and turn it into a punchline to get a laughter out of an enraptured audience is that's the same impulse that's going to destroy him. And he's powerless. Yeah, that idea of being powerless, being true doesn't. to who you are. It's like yeah. if, if it's hard to tell who you are, how do you be true to that? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like Capote definitely struggled with that. He yeah, he wanted to life. tell him the story. He wanted to tell his own story of being very successful socialite and author and uh but at the same time he was also this very different other person. How do you be true to the two different completely incongruous halves of yourself? Yeah. And I also thought like it's interesting like there's a scene in the very beginning where uh, Harper Lee and he are going to the train to Kansas and he has this interaction with this, you know, uh, train porter who's like putting away his luggage. Yeah. And I always thought that's like, well, maybe this guy was genuinely moved by Capote's writing. And then Harper's like, how much did you pay him? <laughs> and like, it, I think it, it's equally funny that Capote would pay this guy to d- give him this over the top compliment. It's also equally funny that Capote doesn't give a shit and he's just playing along with the bit. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, sure, I paid him. What was the giveaway? Which one is too much? Which was the line? Like, I don't that, that there's a, there's like a dozen little scenes like that that just the movie doesn't tell you how to think you just assemble information and then when you see the configuration increasingly becoming more and more questionable and horrific like yeah. it's not telling you how to feel you're just seeing this man navigating his life and the reaction of his friends the reaction of his confidants um and then juxtapose like yeah, like there there was one real jarring scene where he went from like talking to Peter and really relating to him to him being at a party and just laughing and being the life of the party. And you're like, well, what is what is serious to this guy? Yeah. Other than his own external reputation. Right. Is that the only thing he values? No, uh, I, I did. I did come away, I think, with a less than flattering impression of the man, but also a certain amount of respect uh, there's, it's, I'm conflicted. I'm as conflicted about who he is as as he probably was about who he is uh, sure. while writing in Cold Blood. But yeah, I I still don't know exactly how to feel, even though I've read basically his entire Wikipedia article now. Yeah. Uh, know so much about like the aftermath of this and how it just totally changed him. Yeah, I'm really curious to see because I know I kind of want to read in Cold Blood, and I know there's been a couple of film adaptations, and I'm kinda, I kind of want to fall go into a Capote uh, a, a hole here. Like I haven't seen Breakfast and Tiffany's until just last Christmas. Like Cecily wanted me to watch it, and I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I don't mind. It's you know one of the great movies. It's got this like uh, everyone talks about this like super racist Chinese portrayal that Mickey Rooney's doing. Yeah, I'll check it out, but like. I kind of want to see more of this stuff. Like I want to see like this novel that everyone, like everyone as it's being written, like Capote saying, yes, it's the best thing I've ever written and it's going to change the world. And then like an ed- a fa- an editor reads it and he's like, Oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever read. It's going to change how books are written. Uh-huh. Like Jesus, that's pretty incredible. I kind of, I want to read about that. Um, so 
the other thing I want to talk about, like this fiction versus nonfiction, because I also understand that there's some liberties that were taken um, in the adaptation of, I guess this was based largely on a, a bio, a biography called Capote. And also, you know, some of uh, Capote's personal recollections about working on In Cold Blood and In Cold Blood itself. But ev- I- I've heard that this movie takes a little bit of liberties with that official account. But that usually really pisses me off in biopics. I really like it. I was like, God damn it. Why don't you? Often the truth is just as compelling. Why couldn't you find a way to better adapt the truth? Um, but this, I almost feel like it's an artistic choice because it's doing what Capote is largely accused of doing and in cold blood. Like these is, this is essentially a true narrative. He's just punching the dialogue to what extra connects. He's maybe embellishing a description or three to really put your mind in a small town that, you know, a person from Manhattan's never been, but it's like exactly how they imagine in some, in some way. Um, and I thought uh, I, I, I thought this this really jumped out at me when we first meet Peter, right? Like he's this really good looking, brooding person. He's got amazing art skills. Uh, Capote offers him aspirin for his his crushing pain that he's in. Is, you know, is it a headache? Is it a soul crushing existentialism? Who knows? He takes the aspirin. He just he just chews him up and swallows him. No water. Ugh. And I'm like. There's no way this guy can be real, right? Okay. Uh, he's using all these like hundred dollar words, and I, like I, I, I start things like, okay, what was the real Peter like? That was based on the Capote Peter. That then has then been filmed with the actual movie Peter. And I just thought all that was interesting because it's it's all part of the kaleidoscope. Like, what is true? What's not true about the man? About the movie? About the process? About this movie? And I found it fascinating yeah. rather than frustrating. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, I, I did not go look up any interviews with uh, the director of this film. So I don't mm. know what if that's part of what the thinking was going into this, yeah. um, if that was intentional or if that was just sort of an emergent thing that happened. I have because, like, the, again, the, the making this thing just seems so meta. It's like, hey, let's make. Let's make a movie about childhood friends getting like rich and famous at the same time and helping each other out because mm. we were childhood friends and now we're rich and famous and we're helping each other out. Right. And, and then it became like, well, how much how much further into the meta can we push it? You know. <laughs> sure. It, it's interesting to me um, to go back, I guess, to Capote's sort of obfuscated core, I guess, of, of who that man is that he describes peter as an intensely lonely person like there's one line where that's kind of his impression after first meeting him and i think it's interesting in the context of capote sort of hiding who he is um and and almost feeling proud about like that line he says people you know thought they had me pegged and they were always wrong he almost that's almost said with a bit of like uh he wants to keep it that way he's proud of that fact something like that and then he talks about this you know peter smith being intensely lonely and that being like one of the core issues of of his his character it, it, you could say the same about truman capote i think um someone who hides themselves someone who's that much of an enigma that is is complex almost intentionally and doesn't want anyone to get in there sort of seems like on the face of it to be an intensely lonely person, even though he's yeah. surrounded, you know, by the socialite there, there was a quote I read in, um, 
the Wikipedia article where someone was talking about him and and said that he was it was interesting that he was someone who was trying so hard to get into this world that that being the one the world of the socialites uh, that they were trying to get out of and I don't remember who who it was um, uh, he was trying just as hard to get in as they were to get out and it feels like there's a sort of like tension between who he was and who he wanted to project to other people and that caused an yeah. intense loneliness in him which is what made him identify with Peter and and I, I just found that super fascinating that you know you could do that to yourself uh, yeah. and be conscious of it and still continue yeah. to do it and what causes that like internal rubicification of you in the first place where you don't feel safe to present your true self to the outside world like what all I think it's a lot um, of people assuming things about you. Yeah. And it's like, I, I, that's the other thing. It's like, my God, like a man who looks and sounds like that clawed his way into riches and fame and being taken serious by society. That's a substantial individual. Exactly. That's like, yeah. if, like you found that Daffy Duck got elected to be president. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. How do you get through the first debate? Um, uh-huh. But he just like refuses to not let any to, to have anyone not take him seriously. Um, and, and every time also, they do judge him, he he sort of fl- he flips it on him, right? Yeah, like there's a couple. I thought there was they did a really good job of showing uh, what I thought were a couple attempts to like dethrone him from co- from the court he was holding in conversations. Yeah, and he would just instantly co-opt and continue on his point, like as if the person was agreeing with him when they obviously weren't. They were trying to disagree, and he's like exactly he'd restate the point and then go right on with the narrative that he had like he uh-huh. he handled it like a like a, a, a seasoned comic handles hecklers like yeah. just sh- shuts them down puts it at includes them in his act and keeps rolling it's sure. it's it's amazing he this guy had this it's and also it's like man it's just that's the other thing i find interesting because most people like truman just don't appear like you don't hear about them having the 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 struggles of conscience that he did it's yeah. like he's capable of doing all that stuff and internalizing all those things and yet incapable of enjoying the riches and fame it brought him. Sure. Uh, he's like strong enough to do this thing, but not strong enough to like not think about the consequences. I don't know. Maybe he had better friends that wouldn't let yeah. him like just glibly ignore the the wreckage he's causing in people's lives. I, I, yeah, I it seemed know. like Harper Lee was one of those. I, I think like uh, Harper Lee and uh, shit. What's what's his boyfriend's name? Because they were like uh, on again, off again. Like yeah, I don't. I can't time. remember. He's a he's a famous author and playwright in his own right. He's Bruce Dun- Dumfrey. Dun- yeah, something, something like that. that. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, both of those characters seem to to acknowledge uh, that kind of dichotomy in him. Um, yeah, not trying to punish him, but also not like you know, like uh, yeah. uh, the, the, the Greenwood played this man like when he realizes he's not coming home from Christmas. He's not really necessarily out to punish. Capote, but he's also not going to be lied to. He's like, okay, yeah. well, we're done talking now. Uh-huh. And I think yeah. that's that's key, right? Like what I said early on, you got to know him your entire life to even begin to understand him. And I think those two characters, those two people, are the ones who did. Yeah, but also like you understand why people still uh, you put up with him because he's a fascinating, kind of sure. hilarious individual. Like there's a lot of like moments of like humor and and. Uh, uh, I mean, not not much past the the halfway point of this movie, um, yeah. but there's a lot of like you know you can see the magnetism that the guy had despite um, everything, despite all the reason the reasons that people would just dismiss him on 
uh, you know, our rival. Um, he just had this powerful gift in, in writing and, and oratory and vernacular to um, make people force him to take him seriously. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up for this movie, Capote. Next week, Jim and I will be back to discuss the 2013 film Fruitville Station, uh, which is interesting for a variety of reasons right now, but also historically, it launched the very fruitful collaboration between Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan. They would go on to found the Creed, uh, Apollo successor franchise, uh, go on to Superstardom Heights together in Black Panther. Uh, and this is where their 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 careers. Uh, I mean, Michael B. Jordan is already a superstar in my eyes for his work on The Wire. But this this launched their their adult careers, and uh, I'm I'm really interested to in see it. I've never actually seen this one. Yeah, me. So either. we're gonna go back and visit 2013's Fruitdale Station and next week's Bald Movies. Hopefully, you guys can get a chance to check it out before we do, so you can participate in the conversation. Uh, but either way, we'll see you next week. And until then, I'm Aaron and I'm Jim. Later. <laughs>